Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. I don't know if you guys caught it, but uh, about a minute before the countdown was over, I came up to take my cafeteria cam photo, and we're doing better. We're doing better. So I'm going to try to do that periodically, Just and I might put it up on our Harvest Facebook page so we get a weekly feedback of how we're looking around 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. In case you miss what I'm talking about, our worship service begins at 10 a.m., uh, and I want to encourage you to think about that as meaning we begin our preparation of our hearts, our stillness, even a little before 10 a.m., so that when things kick off, we're ready to go to give God our best. Uh, if you're new to the church, my name is Dave. It's my joy and my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. We have been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John, but Usually in the last few weeks of the year and the first week of the new year, we depart from whatever series we're on to have some more targeted focus messages on other things. And this, this first Sunday of the year, I don't want to preach out of John. I want to give you a message this morning that I believe God laid on my heart about something that needs to be front and center as we're kicking off a new year. Because I know when I was maybe in my teens and my 20s, every new beginning was filled with nothing but optimism. I don't know if you remember what that felt like, but not enough stuff had gone wrong yet for me to be jaded. So I was always like, everything's going to be awesome. I was living the Lego movie. And then I got a little older and stuff started to go wrong. I started to fail. People failed me. You get a little bit jaded. You're like, well, maybe it'll go okay. We'll see. I think that's the phrase that marks midlife for most people. We'll see. Don't get, don't get excited. We'll see. I know that's kind of how a lot of us feel. That a new year's starting and a lot is happening inside. You feel a pull, a familiar pull, and yet even as hope rises, faith rises, there's always that voice that says, take it easy. Give it at least till February. Let's see how it goes because you know how these things work out. In the face of that kind of jaded caution, I just want to just encourage all of you, as God's been encouraging me, let it go. Surrender to it. Dare to hope a little bit. Throw caution to the wind. So what if you're disappointed? So what if it doesn't turn out exactly the way you thought? I would rather hope and be disappointed than to live my life protecting my heart and expecting less and then being satisfied all the time that I got less. Wouldn't you? I guess not. <laughs> so I'm alone in the room. But this morning, the message on, the, on my heart for you guys, for all of us, is this idea of forgetting what is behind. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14 reads this way. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his friends in the church in the city of Philippi. And here's what he says. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow 
attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have... What have I done? Sorry, guys. Did I... I've done something. There we go. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, the early years of our church, when I was young and most of our congregation was young, it was my practice around this time of year, every year, to take a, a select small group of younger people and we would drive out east to the One in Love, otherwise known as the Oil Conference. How many of you have been to a One in Love or Oil Conference? Okay. So they're pretty intense. They're gather, in those days, we gathered anywhere from 700 to 1,100 young people in this smelly, tight-packed sardine can of a conference center. Um, no amenities. It was really just one of the most uncomfortable, unluxurious experiences, and yet God explosively showed up all the time there. And I would speak, and so uh, in those days, the budgets were lean, and so we'd drive cross-country. And I remember on one particular outing to the oil conference, that was when, in the days when it was still out in Montrose, Pennsylvania. Man, I miss those days. I miss those days, man. And we were driving out, and by the time you get there, you're just exhausted. And when we get there, I don't know if you know, but for the participants, it's a grueling schedule. For the pastors, it is like getting clobbered with a sledgehammer and being tortured with sleep deprivation for like five straight days. It was just nonstop. So by the time the conference is over... There's nothing left, man. I mean, the, the tank is totally empty. My heart is full. My body is just about to quit. So I remember one time, this young, young guy, he said, Pastor Dave, you don't look well. And I think he was more concerned about his own life than mine. So he said, can I drive the first leg of the return trip? And I was like, thank you. And I handed over the wheel. I went to the passenger seat, and I was unconscious right away. He's driving, and, and it felt like I had just closed my eyes when I feel this this nudge on my shoulder, and I, I open my eyes, and I see his face. He's looking really concerned. He goes, uh, sorry to wake you up, Pastor Dave, but something seems wrong with your car. It's acting really sluggish. I don't know what it is, but I can't seem to get going very fast. And then as I'm coming to, I smell something, and I realize what's happened. This guy has been driving for like 30 minutes with the parking brake engaged at highway speeds. He was trying to help me out, so I couldn't be too upset. But this is a, my new car, and I'm just like, oh, Lord. So I looked over and I said, hey, why don't you pull over for a second and just put it in park. See that little thing? Just yank it. You'll hear a big click. The parking brake has been on this whole time. He goes, oh, my gosh. And he was so sorry. And then when he disengaged it, we started going again. And I'll, I still remember what he said with this weird look in his eyes. He goes, Pastor Dave, your car drives like a sports car now. I'm like, yes, dumb, dumb. It, when you disengage the parking brake, it's fast, surprisingly fast. I just remember that story because it just reminded me how no matter how earnest you are in your desire to move forward, if you don't attend to the little things, something could be holding you back 
And you don't realize what it feels like to freely move forward unless you address the things that are dragging you down. You know, I sense a renewal of yearning, of desire for more from God, to give more to God. I don't think that's everybody in the church, but I think that's a great many of us. There's a, a, a spirit in the air, and I feel it this year keenly, even more than past years. And so in the last couple weeks of last year, just continue to issue a challenge that I think God is laying on our hearts. He's calling out to us for more of us because he wants to give us more of himself. On State of the Union Sunday, which is the third to the last Sunday of the year, uh, preached the message called Running to Win. And we really just talked that Sunday about pursuing Christ in the way that we once did, many of us, just with all-out abandon, everything all in, just the best you got, as much as possible. Give God your very best and see how he meets you in the giving of that very best. And then on the last Sunday of the year, which we always call Recommitment Sunday, just called us again to a single-minded focus to gaze at and to worship Jesus above everything else. Worry less about what you're doing for him, which is what Martha was doing, and focus your whole heart on worshiping him, devoting yourself to him, listening to him the way Mary did, and see what kind of renewal God brings about. So as I was preaching those messages and looking out at the room and receiving emails and feedback, just talking one-on-one with many of you, I can tell something's going on. And for a good many of us, we are hearing God's call to renew our faith. In fact, I was really encouraged this week, thus far, 77 of us have committed to a Bible reading plan in 2019. That's pretty awesome. 77 of us. Praise God for that. I think he's going to really meet us in the reading of his word. So as I see this expression of a yearning, a real desire to see God rise in our lives again, to remember again what it felt like to just pursue him with all our hearts. I want to issue a reminder this morning at the start of the new year, check your parking brake. Because sometimes you start rushing ahead and you go, why doesn't it feel as excited out here as my heart feels in here? How come everything's happening so slowly? Now, I don't suggest renewal and revival are always instant, but sometimes you can feel it. There's a drag, and the heart is so willing and earnest, but in the spirit, something is holding you back. So I want to speak this morning about how to run a race the right way. And I don't want to speak about it. I think Paul's already speaking about it. Look at what he says, okay? By the, how to run a race. <laughs> An instructional. He says, without any ambiguity, this is the prize I'm after. And it's important to know what the win looks like before you start any endeavor. For Paul, without any confusion, the prize he's after is not to be the best Christian he can be. That's not really his aim. He redefines everything in terms of this. My goal, above all other things, is to know Christ. To know Christ and not just know about him factually the way a theologian would, but to have the deepest kind of identifying with him. That means, on a regular basis, experiencing the power of his resurrection, which means there's a daily renewing, a reviving of my deadness coming to life. A power I don't generate from within myself. It's not me going, come on, self, get with it. It's a power 
from God in me at work. And every day I'm identifying with this. I'm experiencing something new is happening. I love that feeling. It's not every day, but when I feel it, it is one of the most wonderful things is to feel like my spiritual life is rising, not through my effort, but because God is doing something in me, in my attitude, in my heart. And that's part of it. That's what... Paul yearns to experience is not a self-driven, striving kind of faith, but a renewal that comes from inside. And then he also says part of that is also being willing to identify deeply with him when things get rough. In his sufferings, I identify as well. That means when I am not doing well, when hardship visits my life, I don't immediately jump to God, get me out of this, but to say, even in this hardship, I am coming to understand something about my Savior. He went through this stuff too. So Paul's prize, the thing he's aiming at, is he wants, and look at this word, somehow, and so somehow attaining to this new life that springs out of death. We experience many deaths before we actually stop breathing. The death of dreams, the death of hopes, the death of relationships. There are many deaths in human life we experience. And what we yearn for is that because of Christ, there is regularly in our spirits a rebirth, a rising of life out of the places of death. And what he says is, no matter what, that is my aim. And he says, somehow, which in other translations I think capture it better. Uh, for example, the ESV says, by any means possible. The New Living Translation says, one way or another, meaning this. I don't care how it happens, whether it's through tough times or good times. The only goal I have that I'm running for is to know Christ deeply in this way. To identify with him. And so he says, that eye on the prize is what informs the way he runs the race and the way he's calling us to run our race. And what he says is, here's the one thing I do. I don't look backwards while I'm running. I look forward because my eyes are clearly, obsessively on that prize. Have any of you ever run competitively? Just raise your hand. Yeah, I, I, was, I, ran, I, I ran sprints when I was in junior high. I was a very speedy little short-legged guy when I was in junior high. And uh, I, I ran sprints for the track team. So I didn't get as many experiences of this because I think this dynamic happens more when you're doing long-distance running. But there is a tremendous temptation in competitive runners to keep glancing backwards, right? And why would you, as a runner ever look backwards? What would be the motivation for looking back? What are we doing when we do that? Tell me. Yeah, to see how far ahead you are. In other words, you're running, but you're so mindful that you're running against other people. So what you're doing is saying, hey, how far back, especially if you're in the lead, this is a huge temptation, how far back is the rest of the field? And if the next guy is crawling right up your tailpipe, you're like, what do you do? As you glance back, you turn on the jets. Like, oh, I better get serious. And they start running harder. And that's natural. I think Paul was an athlete because he uses so much athletic imagery in his writings. I think he was either an athlete or at least a sports fan. If there was an ESPN back in those days, Paul would have been a subscriber. I know that when you're running, you glance for only one reason, and that is to say, how am I doing compared to the rest? 
And what you're saying is, I will gauge my intensity on how I'm doing relative to others. Because what you're mindful of is this is a race, and races for, for most people are thought of as reacting to competition. And what Paul says is that's one way to run a race, but if you have any gas left in the jets, why does it matter how close the next person is? If the goal is to win a prize, don't look backwards because that has nothing to do with the race. The whole race is at the finish line in front of you. The whole point of the race is to run your maximum. If you got anything left, shame on you. My track coach used to say, Lee, if you can breathe or stand at the end of the race, don't even come near me. You have to run every race so that you think you're going to die. Like, that's it. I left it all on the track. And that should have nothing to do with where you are relative to anyone else. What happened at the last turn? The only thing a runner should be mindful of is the prize that stands ahead of him, the goal to finish. And that's what Paul says is, I don't spend my time obsessing over what's back there. Because what now defines my life is what lies ahead up there. Why not just run all out no matter what? Here's what he's really saying. He's really saying, I now no longer think of the race of my faith as reacting to anyone or anything else. I now reframe the Christian race as reaching for someone, not reacting to someone or something. And I think that's an important piece of guidance for how we run our race. Because if you look backwards, you're going to find all kinds of things to react to. And a lot of what you're reacting to will drag you back, hold you down. It will hinder the forward movement that your heart yearns for. I'm not trying to trivialize what you'll see in the rearview mirror. That stuff is real. But the real prize that should drive our lives is standing out in front of us, ahead on the track. So as we embark on a new year, it's already January 6th. Uh, I think Eugene alluded to this in in the beginning of praise time. Some of us are already on day five of failing at our resolutions. We've got the health club membership ID card. I remember one year, that was my victory. By January 2nd, I had the card. By January 3rd, I knew I was never going to swipe that card again. It's just the way it goes sometimes with resolutions. And yet, I think there is a pull on our spirits this year that feels real. It feels strong. It is the discernible voice of God, the pull of the Holy Spirit over so many of us. We're feeling it. What do we need to leave behind in order to actually start running forward. I want to talk about a couple things we should leave behind. And I'm going to go kind of fast, so I'm going to need you to really be attentive and hang on with me. The first thing I'm going to call us to leave behind are past victories. That's a weird place to start. But I think one of the great hindrances to forward movement is past victory. You know, in the first few verses of this chapter... Paul catalogs all the things that once used to give him a lot of confidence in a standing with God. He talks about uh, his place of influence in the religious structure of his day. He talks about the great zeal with which he tried so hard to be a religious man. 
And how everyone around him affirmed, man, settle down. You are on fire. What is wrong with you? You're so intense. And he said, yeah, that was my badge of honor. That's how I knew where I stood with God. As everyone around me said, you are like the super dude in the church. You're at every meeting. You pray so hard. You sing so loud. Your hands are always raised. Your eyes are closed. What is with you? And that's how he knew how he was doing spiritually. Was he looked at his intensity. He looked at his influence. He looked at his reputation. And that's how he knew he was doing okay. But then what he says is, after meeting Christ, everything changed. The whole motivation set that drove his religious life shifted. Here's what he has to say in his testimony. Here's a few verses before our text. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying, It used to be that all my spiritual and religious achievements were what gave me my confidence. How I knew I was doing okay with God, how I knew he liked me, was I had gone very far in the religious pageant, the spiritual Olympics. I was a gold medalist. That's how I knew. And he's saying, once I met Jesus, everything changed. I no longer cared how good a religious man I was. The only thing I cared about was knowing this Jesus more. You know, I think you can compare that to marriage. I think some people live under a a very distorted picture of what the the driving force of married life is. For some, it's, it's driven by a yearning to perfect everything in life. I want the perfect relationship, the perfect household, the perfect children, the perfect job, the perfect yard, the perfect car. I want to be the perfect mate. And in all of that, what's not being said is, I want to be in love and to actively love this specific human being with the whole of my heart. I think it's possible to be to someone else the most incredibly faithful, skilled, conscientious, thoughtful, considerate husband and not love that person in the depths of your heart. I think it's very possible. I think it's happening everywhere. See, I think it's possible to be an exceptional Christian person from a religious standpoint and yet not be falling in raptured love with Jesus Christ every day. And if that is what, how we measure our spiritual vitality, then we're getting an A in the wrong game and getting an F in the right one. What Paul is saying is the reason to leave old victories behind is because they create a false sense of confidence around the wrong things. Those past victories are not notches on your resume. They are echoes, memories of God's past grace and faithfulness for us in our lives. That memory of a time when you were doing so well with Christ, so close to him. You know, we all have that highlight film, right, of the golden age of my Christianity. For most of us, it's back way back when. For me, I often talk about the the age of 24 as being one of the greatest periods of my Christian relationship with God. Such a time of intimacy, intensity, faithfulness, sacrifice. And I look back to those days and I think, man, that was when I was really good. 
And Paul takes that kind of thinking and he shatters and said, that has nothing to do with Christianity. That was an echo of a memory when God was gracious to you, was drawing you close, was loving you, and that was for that day. It wasn't meant to be a trophy or ribbon hung on a shelf to set a benchmark. It was simply God showing up that day, and he keeps doing it. But sometimes, when we hang on to past victories, we stop expecting anything today because we remember how great it once was. Here's another reason why I think past victories are such a handicap. They set a false ceiling. They tell us that back then, that great memory was as good as it ever gets. Well, maybe that was as good as it ever got, but that doesn't mean it can't get better. I think too often we look back at some golden age of our our memory, maybe of our, our friendships, our marriages, our families, our faith, and we think that was when it was the best. And that is to say that God is done showing up that my expectations are tempered to protect my heart, that I don't expect anything to happen here and now. And that affects the way that we walk. It affects the way that we pray. It's, you know, we often temper our expectations as a way of protecting our hearts because it hurts to expect, to hope, to want, and be disappointed again and again. So as a defense mechanism, we just go, I'm okay with just how it is. And if I'm surprised, awesome. But if not, at least I won't be hurt. And you know what? I think that is a very huge statement about how we view God. You are the God who showed up, not the God who shows up. Thing is, we are not who we were. We can only be who we are. Let me say that again and let that marinate in you. We are not who we were. We are only who we are right now. God's faithfulness, his grace over you yesterday was for yesterday. Praise God for that. It wasn't meant to be a treasure that substitutes for his grace today. He still wants to show up in your life. And for some of us, we have to let go of this idolization of some past victory, some past golden age and say, God, I want you desperately to show up now. I want you to beat Yesterday, you. I want you to blow me away. I want to still have the capacity to hope and expect and want and believe. What past victories do you need to leave behind? Really give this some thought. Take a second. What old benchmark of how great it could be do you need to shed in order to realize God is still at work? in your life now, this year, today. We're not called to live by the echoes of God's voice, but to live by the sound of his voice. Even the good memories can hold us back. There's another thing to leave behind. We've got to leave behind past failures. Can anyone else say Amen to failures. And give me one second. I've got to blow my nose so I don't irritate you the rest of the sermon. Please, please pray for my sinuses. Something is very wrong with all this up here. <clears throat> we need to leave behind past failures. I've shared this um, unflattering story I think once or twice now and I, I want to share it again. And I share it because it is one of the defining failures of my own life. 
my father's a, a medical doctor. He had a private practice in North Chicago for years. He still does. And for the early years, the first decade or so, he had a nurse, a, uh, an office manager and nurse named Helen Slowinski. She was the, the kindest, most loving person I had met to that point. I mean, she was like an angel. She never did anything but showed kindness to us. And I remember then when I was in eighth grade, I heard the devastating news that Aunt Helen was diagnosed with cancer and was dying. And as an eighth grader, I, I didn't know where to put that. Like, I, I just, I was freaked out. Some of us, even as adults, are still freaked out, intensely uncomfortable with sickness and dying, and I understand why. But as an eighth grader, I didn't know what to do with that. I loved Aunt Helen with my whole heart, and I didn't know how to react to the news that she was dying. I remember one day, and I could tell by the way my mom was saying it that the end was near because she said, David, I'm going to the hospital, and I want you to come with me to say goodbye to Aunt Helen. And I was so conflicted inside because I loved Helen, and I had not yet worked up the nerve to go see her, but I just couldn't face it, especially because the way my mom said it, I knew it was probably going to be the last time. And so I looked at her and said, Mom, I know you're going to be mad, but I can't go. I just can't. And she didn't push. She just said, okay. And I spent that afternoon playing touch football with my friends in the neighborhood. My mom came home crying, and she said, um, Aunt Helen is dying. It won't be long now. And, I, you know, she was in a Catholic hospice, and in that room was a little piano. And she had asked my mom, oh, you know, Jane, what I want to hear before I die more than anything is I want to hear Amazing Grace played on that piano. My mom doesn't play piano at all, and she sat at it and tried to plink out a few notes, but it just wasn't. She said, David, I know you could play that song beautifully. Had you come with me, you could have granted Aunt Helen her dying wish. And it breaks my heart that in that room, I couldn't give this woman the one thing she wanted before she went home. I think I'll see her in heaven and she'll say, it's okay, Dave. I got over it. But I carried the weight of that regret and guilt around with me for a long, long time. It defined the way I looked at myself. Later, as the Lord, by his grace, redeemed that failure, it became motivation for why I try to capture every moment that I can. I obsessively try not to let opportunities pass me by. But for many, many years, I tortured myself over what an unfaithful person and a coward I was. It took a really, really long time for me to get over that failure. And here's the thing about failures. I can't do anything to erase. I don't have a time machine. If I did, I think that would be one of the first dates I set. I dial back to eighth grade. I'm going to go to that room. No, I'll, I'll go a week before and I'll practice Amazing Grace like a week and then I'll go. You know, the Apostle Paul who writes so much of the words in the New Testament that speak to hope and renewal and grace. He was also a guy whose life was defined by some very huge failure. On a few occasions, he's incredibly transparent about his failures, especially the failures that he had when he was religious but not saved. 
And here's one of the testimonies he gives in Acts 26. Listen to what he says. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. In fact, it was on one of those mission trips of persecution that Jesus intercepted him on the road and saved his life. Now, I don't know about you, but I've done some bad things. I don't know if I've done anything quite like that. So Paul does make me feel a little better. I mean, I never killed Christians before I became one. But, you know, Paul's a guy who writes about the hope, the newness of life that comes through the gospel. But he didn't just slide down that that greased, you know, plain. For him, it was a huge climb up from the valley of failure, regret, shame, and guilt. I think Paul carried that around with him for a long time. And what he says, he testifies, is it was because of Jesus and only Jesus that I could move forward still knowing the truth about who I really am and who I was. You know, this is a very familiar verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But when you consider Paul's testimony of failure, you capture a little bit of the power of what he's saying here. He says this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. That's a statement that I think many people believe is impossible for them because of the failings of their past, because of the stuff they know they did once before. God is calling us to move forward in our relationship with him. But one of the things that will drag you back and keep you from moving is hanging on to past failures and carrying the weight of that guilt and shame and regret even after he has offered to take it from you. I don't think we can just put it away. That doesn't work. I've tried. I've tried to take my failings and just go, oh, that's just, that's human weakness. I'm just a person after all. It doesn't work to just put it away and try not to think about it. It's there. Something has to be done about it. And the only thing that can be done about it is to lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, that is truly who I was. It is who I could be, but it is not who I am in you. Take this from me. Take the old life and give me a new one in exchange. So I ask you, as you're staring down the barrel of a new year, what past failures do you have to leave behind? Things that you can't fix. Things you can't go back and make good again. Acts you can't undo, words you can't unsay, broken things you can't put back together. They're there. You can't change it. What can you do about it? And Jesus says, give them to me. I'll take them from you. 
And I'll put you back on page one. What past failures do you need to leave behind? Let me give you one last thing. Leave behind past hurts. I think maybe for most Christians I have known, this is the hardest of the three. I think most people are okay at leaving behind past victories if you promise them greater ones yet to come. All right. And I think most people are okay at forgiving themselves. Not great, but okay. What's really, really hard is to overlook the hurts others have caused us. For many people, it's not their own failings or their own victories, but it's the failings of others that have wounded them. That's what you can't get over. That's what colors our perception of God and the gospel and the church. Our whole approach to Christianity is informed by the failings of others towards us. How can I trust? How can I believe? How can there be such a thing as grace? I don't feel any forgiveness in me. I keep hearing you say I'm supposed to forgive. I look in my heart and go, where is that forgiveness? And I don't find it. And I totally understand why. I don't believe we'll ever find grace and forgiveness in the depths of our own hearts. I don't think it exists there. When you dwell on the bad things other people have done to you, the longer you dwell on it, I promise you, whether you're a Christian or not, if you dwell on the hurts others have caused you, the only things that will rise in you are anger and pain and bitterness and a yearning for revenge. I don't know any human being, Christian or not, who looks into their own heart and goes, look at that. Oh, there's mercy and forgiveness and grace abounding in there. Look at that. Look what I have. It's not in there. It's not in there. You know, let me tell you just how, how much I believe this. You guys know that I play Call of Duty on the Xbox. And I have to be careful because I like it a little too much. So I have to really measure how much I give myself to it. Now, I'm playing with really immature people from all over the world. Dorks like me who would sit for an hour in front of a video game, call it a life. That, that just, that's my tribe. And, and there's this practice that I hate. Certain guys, when they know they're going to end the game, they're going to leave soon, they team kill their own teammates. You get kicked off after three team kills. But there's something deeply offensive about your own teammates shooting. You're like, hey! And here's the thing. Every now and then that happens, and I get so mad, so mad, that for the rest of that round, I'm looking for that teammate just to kill him back. Like, I don't care about the enemy anymore. I'm going to kill you. And when I find him, and I jump off a building, and I throw a grenade, and it sticks to his back, and it explodes, I'm like, yes, now you know. Don't you ever do that to me. And, and I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, and yet, in something as insignificant as a digital battle, the yearning for vengeance is so fierce. Do you know what's in me? That's, the, that's what's in me. You cross me, you better watch your back. Because if it's in my power, I'm going to get you. 
And apart from Jesus, that is all you will ever get from me. And I'm a pastor. (laughs) Here's the truth. Grace does not live in us. Forgiveness isn't in us. When you hear someone tell you forgive, don't listen if that, what they're saying is you have to find it in you. You can't. The only place to find forgiveness is in the heart of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, listen, if you dwell on the way others have treated you, you will become a dark and bitter, angry person. You will never get over it. Here's the way to be. And here's how he starts. He gives the command, which is an impossible command. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Okay, Paul, sure. That's how, that's how we'll live. We'll just be kind and compassionate to each other. We'll just forgive each other. It's so easy. He goes, it's not easy. But here's the standard. Here's the only way you're going to live this way. Here's the starting point. Do it the way in Christ God forgave you. You'll never find grace and forgiveness dwelling on other people or on yourself. Come on, Dave. Don't be like this. I've said it. Sitting in front of my Xbox. Seriously, what was that, Dave? Don't be like that. So the next round, I tried to go out of my way. Hey, good shot, guy. All right. I talked to these guys, but... I just realized I can't get it. I can't put it in there. I can't. Come on. Be more like this. The only place I actually find any capacity for tenderness, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness is when I dwell on the way God has treated me. Now, I know I let myself off the hook very quickly. All my failings are because someone else made me do it. But the truth is, I am not a good person. And if you'll permit me to say so, neither are you. You are as foul as I am. If you look for goodness inside, you won't find it. The only goodness in us is Jesus who lives in us. And he has treated us better than we'll ever treat ourselves. He has treated us better than we'll ever treat anyone else. The starting point of letting go of your past hurts is not to look for graciousness in yourself. It's to say, God, I don't pretend for a second that I'm innocent. I have done wrong against you, and I've done wrong against others. How can I move on? Never mind those failings. What about my own? How can I move forward? It's because you have so richly forgiven me. You were so kind to me. And the longer you dwell on that, the more truly you will find rising in you the ability to let others go. I think C.S. Lewis, in typical fashion, said it so well in his book, The Weight of Glory. To be a Christian, he writes, means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I think those words are so true. That is at the heart of, of what it means to be a Christian. is to take that thing of which you have said many times, I can forgive a lot of things, but I cannot forgive that. And we stand before God and say, what if God ever said such words to us? We would be ruined and damned. There would be no hope. But instead, every time we stand before Jesus, what we say, what we hear is, 
I know you think this cannot be forgiven, but there is nothing he cannot forgive. And when you realize the inexcusable in you has been so graciously forgiven, the longer you dwell on that, the more real ability to forgive others will rise in you. As you move forward in the coming year, what past hurts do you need to let go of? And I don't mean just let go of them like you could lose them. What do you have to give up as you dwell on the way that God has been so kind to you in your betrayals? We can't just let people go. God has to let them go through us. My sense this week as I was praying for our congregation, preparing for this message, is that this is the one thing which I think the majority of us who are wrestling will need to experience his deliverance in. It is really hard to move forward in the face of past hurts. But that is God's call and invitation to each of us. And it's not going to be possible apart from him. I'm not asking you to look in and find forgiveness. I'm asking you to look up and find it. I don't know about you, but... um, I keep saying this to you guys. You know, when you talk about that journey of over the hill, that's because life is kind of like this. On the first half of your life, you're on the ascent. and the second half of your life, you're on the descent. And I'm skiing right now. <laughs> I, that's what it means to be over the hills. Everything else is just like, let's go. Here it is. It's right there. And so more and more, my thoughts not just about how I'm living, but how I want to finish I want to finish well, but I don't think it's as easy to get to that place. I, wa- I hear the call of God on my own heart. I'm only preaching to you what I believe he's preaching to me. And there's this incitement growing that I want to give him my best. I hope that as I disengage the parking brake, and leave some of these things behind, this year I will feel him catch me and pull me forward. I don't want to spend another year trying hard. I want to spend a year being made alive inside. Don't you? I hope this year I can never preach another message that goes, come on, try, try. We should try, but I hope that's not all you ever hear. What I want us to feel is, Look what God is doing in us. I woke up today just in a good mood. I want to walk with him. I'm coming alive inside. The deadness is giving way to life. I love these words with which Paul winds down the testimony of his life. I hope these are words someday we could say along with him. I have fought the good fight I finished the race. I have kept the faith. If I could put those words on my gravestone, I would say it was a life well lived. I hope that's going to be our testimony one day.
God is calling us to run forward. Let's cut loose those things we don't need to be dragging behind us. Let's leave behind us the things that need to stay behind us. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.